The Lord be with you. I am so excited to be up here this morning. Um, got a friend out here with a weird sense of humor who, who refers to me as uh, Preacher 1.0 and John Preacher 2.0. I got a text from John this morning at 5 o'clock in the morning, an hour before I intended to get up. Uh, and he sends his greetings and he wishes he could be here. I don't think he's telling the truth. <laughs> They're having a great time. Um, I'm so grateful uh, to be here today and so grateful, uh, as Jonathan said, for the college's gracious provision of this chapel for the whole year. We didn't pay a nickel for this. How kind of them. I wanted to point up a couple of things about Dimnit Chapel that you might not know. Hard to believe, that, it, but it was constructed just before the Great Depression, uh, commissioned by the then President Edward Dimnit um, to seat 1,500 people. At the time, the college had 438 students. Apparently, Dimnit lived by a very simple principle uh, that he learned from the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> and they have come because now every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and Sunday night, this place is packed to the gills under the leadership of uh, Trig V. Johnson, the dean of the chapel, whom I'm very proud of. Uh, that's the one thing I wanted to point out. But the other thing are these stunning stained glass windows that have been looking at us for the last year. Uh, they were, too, commissioned um, by Edward Dimnit. Uh, and an architect from Chicago named Bill Johnson, not our Bill Johnson, but that Bill Johnson, uh, created them. And they're stunning. There are two images of the Virgin Mary here. She's on either side, right in the middle. Isaiah is pictured in these. Jeremiah is. Ezekiel is. And the four writers of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, hard-bitten, cold, calculated. But when Jesus met him, he dropped his love for money like a hot potato and followed uh, the one who holds all the riches of the world, Matthew. Mark is here. Mark is actually the secretary who took down the words of Peter uh, for his gospel. So really the gospel of Mark should better be called the gospel of Peter, but, but we won't quibble with that. Uh, Luke is pictured up here. Luke had this large, expansive heart for all the world. Uh, do you know what his image is? His image is that of the ox. He was strong and brave. He was also the physician of the Apostle Paul, and I would say Paul needed a personal physician. And then John is here, John. John, the beloved disciple. He was the earliest, the youngest disciple to follow Jesus. Do you know how old John was when he left home to follow Jesus? 12 years old. Think about it, 12 years old. He would live to be the longest, the oldest of the disciples, and he would die last, having been exiled by the Roman government on Patmos. He would die later in Ephesus. He was charged to care for Mary, and he did to his dying day. 
That's all of the disciples. And as different as they were, both in temperament and writing style, they had one thing deeply in common. Well, two things, really. One, they loved Jesus and they followed him. But they, every morning and every evening, just as we were singing, would rise up to say, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Vafta et Adonai Eloheka, Behold Levavha, Yuvahol Nefshaha, Yuvahol Mehodeka. I'll translate that in a minute. But for now, I want you to listen with me to these words from the book that we love. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that your children and your children's children may fear the Lord all the days of their lives and keep the decrees and the ordinances that I am commanding you today. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you in the land that you are about to occupy and that you will multiply. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you are away. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when you enter the land that the Lord your God has promised to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. This is the word of the Lord. There's so much there, and my heart is absolutely overflowing, and I'm going to try not to talk too fast because I'm so excited. But I want you to, I want you to embrace with me uh, some instincts that rise up out of the Shema. Oh, let me, let me clarify something for you. I want you to know that I'm interpreting this, this passage in a way that, was, that it was interpreted by Augustine all the way through Calvin as it relates to the land, which of course is a, a hot issue in our world today. But from Augustine to Calvin, they were consistent in understanding that the land referred to the gift of Christ Jesus. It wasn't terra firma, it was a person that we would inherit, and the person was Jesus. So when I read, when I read the land in the Old Testament, I think really uh, of the Lord himself. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, for in him all the promises of God find their yes, 
For this is the reason it is through him that we say the amen to the glory of God. The point is that the promise of the land is the promise of Jesus himself. He is our one true home and rest. Just so you know where I'm coming from on that. But what, what instincts, what capacities, what practices must we possess to in, in order to possess Jesus in this fullest sense? Well, the first one, is obvious, hear. That's Shema, hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Hearing is the capacity preceded by the capacity to silence, to quiet, to listen to the voice of the living God. So my my first challenge and charge is simply that, to quiet down. No easy task in the world in which we live today. Honking, crowded, screaming, earbuds in every ear, earphones over every every head, all because of the need to resist silence. And it's such a sad thing. T.S. Eliot once said, Where shall the word be heard? Where shall the sound resound? Not here. There's not enough silence. So I challenge you in the name of Jesus to find a way to quiet down and listen. When you get home, do you turn the television on right away? Or get in the car and turn your radio on? Listen quietly to the voice of God. It was Isaiah who said, in returning and in rest, You will be saved in quietness is your salvation. Uh, Who likes the poetry of Shel Silverstein? Any hand? Oh, good, good, good. Some of you do. You're going to love this one. Let there be one day for boys and for girlses when they can, girls and boyses, when they can make the grandest noises. Screech, scream, holler and yell, buzz a buzzer, clang a bell, try to bounce a bowling ball, ride a skateboard up a wall, eat your food with a chomp and a slurp, chomp, chew, hiccup and burp. On one day, do all of these. The rest of the days, let there be silence, please. Silence. Silence, quietly entering into the presence of God. Um, Victor Frankl, do you know this name? Author in the earlier part of this century, Austrian psychiatrist and theologian philosopher. He once said this of the Shema, the Hear, O Israel, the greatest symbol of evil in our century is that men marched men, women, and children into the gas chambers of Auschwitz. The greatest symbol of good in our century is that those men, women, and children entering the gas chambers of Auschwitz whispered the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The first prerequisite to entering into the rest, the full embrace of Jesus, is the capacity to be quiet. Let there be silence, please. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Pretty clear to me. The capacity 
to keep and to hold the word of God in your heart. Doesn't it say just that? Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Now, John has covered this ground plenty of times, so I won't, I won't take much time to repeat all of that. Uh, but I do want to do some, I want to play a game with you that I actually learned from rabbis in Israel. They, they will recite a passage of scripture to children and they will uh, make a mistake on purpose. And when they make a mistake, the children are to raise their hands and tell them what the mistake was. Isn't that interesting? So I'm going to do that right here. Uh, so if, if I make a mistake reciting something, you tell me. When we get there, you can boo, you can hiss, you can do whatever you want, or raise your hand. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our Lord, the Lord alone. You shall keep the words of this book in a book, on a shelf. It, oh, okay, oh, you, you caught me. Yeah, yeah. The Lord doesn't say, uh, keep these words in a book. No, he keeps them in the heart, the human heart. You know, I just think it was such a risk on God's part to do that. He knew how fickle our hearts are, and yet the, the preferred repository for his holy word is your heart, not a computer. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Um, earlier this year, or this week, Nancy and I joined a jam-packed crowd at Christ Memorial Church uh, to grieve with Ron and Sue Hemmeke. Ron and Sue um, said goodbye to their daughter, Marissa, in a horrible automobile accident. Is there anything worse for a parent to have your heart ripped out of your chest? Well, I, I, I was so impressed with the strength and the dignity and the care that they comported themselves with. And I was particularly impressed with Ross Dealman, one of the pastors at Fellowship Reformed Church. And I, I hasten to add a, a former student of mine who was just terrific. He got up and he recited with his own broken heart one psalm after another. It was as though it was an avalanche of God's love pouring from God's heart through Ross's tongues onto this heartbroken, grieving family. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart because someday your heart will need them so badly. That's the second thing I wanted to say. Here's the third thing. I want, I want you to develop, um, how shall I say this? I want you to develop an uncommonly gutsy practice of going public with your faith. Don't keep it to yourself. Talk about it when you're at home and when you are away, when you're lying down and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your hearts and on your gates. The point being that the Lord does not want us to keep it to ourselves, but 
to go public with it. It's public theology or it's no theology. You know, I shared earlier in the first service, and I'm happy to share it again. Um, I, I became a student here at Hope College, uh, oh, I hate to say it out loud, but 1969, for, for reasons that I won't bore you with now, uh, my parents were not Christian believers. They were such good people, but not Christian believers. I came here to Hope College not because it was a Christian college or a Reformed church in America, which I knew nothing about, but because the basketball coach, Russ DeVette, loved me and wanted me to come. Now, people will hasten to say that if Russ wanted me, he must have been deaf and blind. Uh, (laughs) Deaf because he couldn't hear people say, you know, this kid actually isn't any good, and blind because he couldn't see that I couldn't jump and I couldn't run, but he wanted me here. But what, it was God's way of getting me in this place with people like Russ DeVette who loved Jesus and cared about other people. And even though I had no idea what made them what they were, I knew that I wanted to be just like them. Well, at the end of my first year as a student here, I went with a group of fraternity brothers, fraternity pledges to Daytona Beach, Florida, to do the sort of things that college kids do on Daytona Beach, Florida, and we were really good at it. Uh, Until about Wednesday, uh, I was so strung out and so anxious and so filled with torment of some kind, and I didn't even know what I was tormented by. I remember walking all night long, all night, the entire night, on A1A in Daytona Beach, if you've ever been there, just filled with college kids. I woke until sunrise, and sometime after the sun came up, I saw a band shell on the beach, and kids plugging in guitars and starting to play and sing. I thought, oh good, I'll just kind of soothe my savage soul here for a moment. It wasn't like a rock band or anything. It was a chapter of Campus Crusade for Christ from the University of Georgia, heating up for a day of beach evangelism. And then a student got up and began preaching on this text, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I have no idea what it's like to be pregnant, but I felt in that moment that a baby was turning over in my soul. I was being born again right there on Daytona Beach. And then later, after his sermon was done, students started filtering around asking if anyone wanted to talk. I raised my hand and said, yes, I do. And I can still see this very nervous kid from the University of Georgia walking me through the four spiritual laws. I went to Daytona Beach, lost, and I came home, found, all because someone was willing to go public about their faith. Let's quote Leslie Newbigin. He's always good at a moment like this. He writes, the church lives by the faith that To put it in a very truncated form, Jesus is Lord. That means that he is Lord not only of the church, but of the world. Not only in the religious life, but in all life. 
not merely over some people, but over all people. He is not just my savior, but the savior of the world. We have no way in which we can demonstrate the truth of that claim by reference to some supposedly more ultimate reality. If it is true, it is true for all. And then he goes on to say, the missionary action of the church is the exegesis or the interpretation of the gospel. The missionary action of the church is the interpretation of the gospel. How will anyone know the truth of Jesus if we remain silent? I'll say that again because I thought it was a really good line. Uh, How will anyone know the truth of Jesus if we remain silent? There you go, that guy's on to it. How will anyone know the truth of Jesus if we remain silent? Speak, speak the name of Jesus and go public. Now, one more thing and I'm coming to the table hungry. Eh, wait a minute, I, I may just clip this point off. Am I going too long, John? No, no. I don't really want to say this point, so I was hoping you would say yes. Um, if we're going to embrace the promised land in Jesus, we can't forget the Lord our God. Can't. To which you're saying, well, Tim, we're here. How are we ever going to forget? Well, there's a curious logic in this passage. Listen again to how Moses says it. And when you enter the land with fine large cities that you did not build, houses filled with good things that you did not fill, vineyards and orchards and groves that you did not plant, and when you have eaten your fill, take care that you do not forget the Lord your God. Do you get the logic that he's using? He has this fear, and it's a well-founded fear, that prosperity brings forgetfulness. Now, that can't be true, but he's worried about it that the more prosperous we become, the more likely we are to forget God. I mean, really, when you think about it, how, how, is, how is it possible for us to pray earnestly, give us this day our daily bread, when our freezers and our refrigerators are tumbling over with good things? And this was a concern that John Wesley had, and I'm gonna read it for you right now. I fear, wrote Wesley in 1740, that wherever riches have increased, the essence of religion has decreased in the same proportion. Therefore, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any period of revival of religion to continue long, for religion must necessarily produce industry and frugality. And these cannot but help to produce riches. But as the riches increase, so will pride, anger, love of the world, and all of its branches. How then is it possible that Methodism, that is a religion of the heart, 
though it flourishes now as the green bay tree, should continue in this state. For the Methodists in every place grow diligent and frugal. Consequently, they become, they increase in goods and riches. Hence, they proportionately increase in pride and anger and the desire of the flesh. So, although the form of religion remains, remains the spirit is swiftly vanishing away. I, I read this in the first service, obviously, and there was a Methodist minister in the house. He came up and thanked me and said, that's right, it's true, and I need to live by this. The point that I'm trying to make is, don't forget the Lord your God. And it is quite possible to do that in the world in which we live. Okay, it's getting time to wrap this thing up. Um, oh, I wanted to share with you this. Uh, Nancy and I have been reading aloud to each other at night this terrific book by Rebecca Dang, a member of our congregation, titled What They Meant for Evil. Uh, I want you to know I have her permission to share this. Um, Rebecca's story is just grinding. Uh, born into a lovely home in the Sudan that was soon ravaged by war, she lost her family, uh, was chased out of her city. At one point, it's the, she describes so poignantly that she just simply, as a little girl, laid by the side of the road and fell asleep and was gone for hours until someone that she didn't know woke her up and picked her up and carried her home and took her in. This is an amazing story. Um, and I want you to hear how she ends her story. Um, this is my story. The soldiers and the Sudanese government, my tribe's enemies, and the man who took from me without knowing what true love is, they meant evil against me but God meant it for good. Though Joseph's story is of an Israelite boy and mine is of a Dinka girl, our stories are the same in that they communicate the stories of suffering, but they also communicate that nothing is wasted in God's world. He redeems everything to himself. He uses people to restore justice and peace. I am loved deeply loved and cherished by the Father of all good things. He is my protector, my identity, my true home. I am no longer lost. I am found. So as I said, I texted her to ask her if I could read that. And this is her response to me. I think you'll like this. Um, oh, Tim. Thank you so much for reading my book. And please feel free to spread the word. Do you hear that? Please feel free to spread the word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall keep this word in your heart. Bind it as a sign on your hand. Fix it as an emblem on your forehead. Write it on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is God's challenge to us. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, I ask you to accept it. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, 
Who have we on earth beside you? There is none like you. And we pray that by your grace great and your mercy free, that you would teach us to hear better, to keep deeper, to proclaim more fully than we've ever done before, and in all things to trust you every day of our lives through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.